One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. It. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hear me? Can you hear me on the phone? I I've got you coming out of every orifice. <laughs> I'm really not, you're breaking off quite badly. Hello, and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason, this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. We're locked in today with one of the country's most successful writers of historical fiction. He also has a wonderful name, which you might also have seen on the cover of his dangerous book for boys, which he wrote with his brother. By his own hand, he's invented stories about the ancient Greeks, Romans and Persians, the Saxons, the Wars of the Roses, and his name is Con Igledon. Con, firstly, that surname, where's it from? Uh, it's from Kent. It's nowhere near as exotic as people think. Um, there's a little place near Biddenden and Tenterden in Kent, which is called Igledean, and... Uh, it's roughly the people who came from Igledean called themselves Igledons. Um, something like 1450, we got back to beginning of Wars of the Roses. Uh, beyond that, uh, we can't tell because anyone who came from Igledean called themselves Igledons, regardless of whether they were related or not. There was, a, there was a story that it meant the pasture of the people of the wolf, which I thought was brilliant, or the pasture of the people of the hedgehog, which I thought was less brilliant. It's slightly demeaning, isn't it? Well, I, that's why I usually I don't mention the hedgehog. It's usually usually wolf. A totem animal is uh, is your wolf right there. <laughs> <laughs> you look at your the figures who appear in your books: Genghis Khan, Caesar, York, and Lancastrian leaders. Now we've got the villains and heroes of Athens and Persia. What is it about the past that fascinates you so much? God, I mean, the, the, all the good stories are there. Um, I mean, that's the first thing. But also all the great characters. I mean, I, I chose Julius Caesar because he was an extraordinary man um, who could dictate four letters at the same time and was uh, a scholar and uh, a, a leader and a tactician from a very young age when he was captured by pirates and held for ransom. I mean, his was a wonderful story. Everyone knew the ending, the Titanic sinks, Brutus et tu Brute, but hardly anyone knew the beginning. And that was the bit I set out to tell, the, the sort of young Julius Caesar. And Genghis Khan, I chose him because he, was, he had that fantastic conflict. He was the, one of the most ruthless generals who ever lived. 
and yet he was a good father, a great brother, a good grandfather, a, a decent son, and he was a, and a great friend. As a man, he was one thing, and then as a general, he was utterly, utterly forbidding and ruthless. And that was, that was really enjoyable to write. Um, Henry VI, I went on to his, with Wars of the Roses because he was weak, and his absence of character meant that people like Richard, Duke of York, could come in and try and take the throne. And it was because poor old Henry, who was in a coma, give or take, a, a state of non-existence almost, mentally for about 18 months where he was shown his own son and didn't seem to react and he didn't react to pain and he slept almost all the hours of the day he had some sort of mental event that took him out of the uh, out of the running really to lead England and into that vacuum comes Richard Duke of York and the the beginnings of Wars of the Roses and that's I was there just the other day actually I was in St Albans and I stopped at the uh, the little triangular marketplace at the top of the hill where I knew Henry was apparently hit in the neck although it may not have been the neck because that should have killed him it might have been just underneath and then he was taken to the abbey as it was then the cathedral of St Albans and Richard Duke of York walked down the long nave seeing him at the end by the altar this bloody young king and uh, had to decide during that walk whether he was going to kill him or not. And of course, he didn't because he believed in the sort of, I won't say divine right of kings, but the, the almost spiritual position of the king. So Richard, Duke of York, he could have finished the Wars of the Roses right then before it even started. And these, these, are, oh, these are good stories, aren't they? These are great stories, but did you know them before you decided to write about them? No, I used to describe myself as the least well-read English teacher in the country uh, back then. But I, I liked, I liked reading. I read a lot of historical fiction, and it, it took me a long time to realise that I was reading George Macdonald Fraser and Bernard Cornwall and Horn, the Hornblower books, C.S. Forrester, Patrick O'Brien. I was reading all of these. Tai Pan by James Clavell. God, it was great. I was reading these without thinking this is a genre I could love. I was just reading them and enjoying them. And then it was I found the story of Julius Caesar and started to write that and, and tapped into this glorious aspect that if it's true, if something actually happened, it has a power that fiction can match but struggles to match. It gives it an extra... If you're writing about Scott of the Antarctic, the fact that he was that he really lost his life in the South Pole and all the rest of it, it, it gives that story a power that a fictional story of Antarctic travel and exploration wouldn't have. So that's sort of how I got into, I discovered that, that history has power. How far can you go in making things up, do you think? You have to fill gaps. I mean, I'm dealing with Pericles at the moment, and, for example, uh, no one recorded the name of his sister, no one recorded the name of his wife. They recorded the name of his first wife, his wife's first husband, Hipponicus, but we don't know whether he was uh, a Hipponicus who was this Hipponicus or a completely separate. There's all sorts of gaps all over. And if you're writing historical fiction, you can't just say nobody knows. You have to make a, a guess and then you will offend all the people who believe you are wrong. Of course, that is the, the downside of it. With Brutus, for example, um, Plutarch said that Brutus was... Some people said he was of a noble family. Others said he was of common stock. I couldn't have it both ways, so I had to pick one. So I made him common stock. Um, no special family going back. And then, of course, all the people who said that he was a young nobleman were very annoyed at me and wrote me emails. It turns out that Roman reenactors in particular have access to email. 
Do you care? It's, sometimes I do. I mean, I used to, at the very beginning, I used to write long emails back to people explaining why Brutus could not have been Julius Caesar's son, as they told me he definitely was. Or the Americans used to constantly write because I referred to corn, as in a cornfield. If you, if you Googled uh, English cornfield even today, you would get a field of wheat, because we tend to use the word a little interchangeably to mean, mean wheat fields. But the Americans only use it for the stuff that is maize with the green leaves and all the rest of it, the corn on the cob. And they got very annoyed that they said, no, you know, corn was discovered in South America and it was only invented in God knows when. And Julius Caesar would never have seen a cornfield. So I get that kind of thing. And I still get that to this day. I, I, at one point, I thought to myself, I will, I'm going to put a telescope in the Julius Caesar story just to annoy these people. I thought uh, there's, there's a little bit of evidence I could get away with. The ancient Assyrians described Saturn as being surrounded by a snake biting its own tail. And I thought, OK, so they must have had a telescope. But either that or it's a heck of a coincidence. There is in the British Museum, there's the Nimrud lens, which is 5th century um, Babylon. And it's a convex rock crystal lens. If you take two of those and a tube, you've got a telescope. So I thought I will give Julius Caesar a telescope and see how many people write in <laughs> about this. And it got right to the proofs. It got right to the point of being published. And, and then I thought, now this is like putting a piano in or a bicycle. Sooner or later, I mean, they're going to throw the book away before they even reach the bit in the historical note where I try and justify the unjustifiable. So I can't do it. So in the end, I, I did. I cut that out. I, my, I lost my nerve. So you stay on the, within the bounds of plausibility. Yes. Well, that's, my, that's always my aim, to try and take incomplete historical documents and knowledge and original sources and fill the gaps to explain why Julius Caesar did what he did. Because the why is what's almost always missing. If you read uh, uh, Norman Schwarzkopf's biography, autobiography today, there would be a lot about why he did what he did. Any modern general writing their text would describe their mental state. But that was missing, completely missing from Roman uh, records of the time. Julius Caesar would say something, famously he wrote his own Gallic um, uh, descriptions, and he would say, in third person, Caesar invaded the territory of the Nervii and uh, captured 200 of their young men, but he never said why he did it. And that's what's, uh, that allows a historical fiction writer to, to get in there and do their best to explain. Do you find it easy to get into the minds of these people? Um, no. I mean, it, it, it's not always easy. I, it's the absolute heart of it. For me, I it, sometimes the joy, and there is joy in this, is when you are you get to know a character very, very well. And I lived with Julius Caesar for the best part of six or seven years, and and I knew him. I felt as well as anyone could, and that meant that if you put me, if if I had to describe a certain situation in history, I suddenly could see why he was doing this, and there there were moments of great joy in that, um, and that offsets all the rest. I know, I am aware that everyone in the modern age who ever writes about a historical person will always probably bring some aspect of modernity to the past. It's very hard not to, uh, oh, I don't know, write a comment about women or slavery or corporal punishment, say, or anything that you think, you know, I might have an opinion on 
and here's a, a character I'm presenting as heroic, and yet, for example, a father in Roman times could strangle his own children without it being a legal uh, problem for him. Um, and I would have to sort of not have anyone reacting to that. I couldn't have anyone saying, goodness me, that's terrible, because they didn't. So for me, the struggle is always to try and get as close as I can to that point of view without bringing a modern sensibility to it. It helps that I don't really have a modern sensibility. Um, you know, <laughs> what my, do you mean? Well, I mean, my, my father was born in 1923, uh, so he lived through World War II, and he grew up in a house with um, no electricity, for example, and that had gas lights and, you know, a tiny little place in Sussex. His father was born in 1850, so he had my dad when he was 73, and that means he was a Victorian. So my dad grew up with a sort of pucker Victorian and a set of values. And that meant that, you know, I had a slightly different upbringing to others of my, uh, my generation. I, I was exposed to very old fashioned sort of views when, I mean, they all remembered Empire Day and all the rest of it. And um, generally considered the, the British Empire to be, a, you know, a good thing. And uh, that, that sort of business, I, I was exposed to, I suppose, in, uh, older stories than most. Stories that aren't told anymore, like the Spartan boy, the one about the, the boy who held, held a fox cub. Uh, and his father had said he wasn't allowed to keep the fox. And the, uh, he caught the boy walking across the yard and the fox started to bite into his chest. And the Spartan boy showed no sign of the agony he was experiencing until he fell dead onto the floor. And the fact that the Spartans told that story to show <laughs> that they admired the boy's extraordinary stoicism, even to the point of death. And, you know, th th my father told me that story and used to sing a Victorian uh, uh, old music hall tune to me to get me to sleep. So I had exposure to different, slightly old fashioned, different cultures, I suppose, and different heroes. I mean, at the end of the day. What about your mum? Tell me about her. Well, she was a, a very different character. Um, she, at the age of, she grew up in Ireland, and at the age of 14, um, her sister announced that she, her 16-year-old sister, announced that she was going to be a nun to the Good Shepherd Convent. And my mother, at 14, said that she wanted to be a nun as well. And the two of them went and told their father that he was losing both his daughters to a lifetime of... Uh, being in uh, being nuns uh, on the same day, I can only imagine how difficult that must have been for him as a, a father of daughters. And they they went off. She was then a nun from the age of fourteen to thirty two, which you can imagine I think are probably the the most significant years of anyone's young life. And at the age of about thirty two, she realised that she, thankfully, wanted to have children, and had therefore not made the right decision. Very rather late. She couldn't stay in Ireland um, because leaving the convent was a very emotionally difficult, it felt like a betrayal, it felt like she had uh, left, she'd broken, she had broken her oaths, broken her vows. And um, I mean, she took a vow of poverty and chastity and obedience and she broke it, well, at least, well, I was going to say at least one of those, but then when she came to England, as she was a trained teacher and she met my father in a, uh, a staff room, and he was, his first wife had died, and uh, he said, um, yeah, he, he described her as the oldest virgin in England at the time, and he, uh, you know, they, they fell in love, and thankfully, my mother wanted children very, very strongly, and my father didn't, 
but uh, because he already had two sons, uh, my older brothers, as I call them, David and John, but um, he didn't want any more children, but my mother was enormously persuasive. So uh, <laughs> he had two more sons, and uh, thankfully I came into the world uh, as a result of that. But it, it meant that my mother went back to a time in Ireland where, for example, she rode a pony and trap to go to church and to school. She would often ride a pony home from school. If there was one nearby, they had a neighbourhood sort of horse that they could all pile onto and it would trot down. And uh, she had a uh, she grew up with a lady who had been damaged in the 1918 um, Spanish flu. And there was a sort of mental uh, damage there so that she could often be found out in the garden with a pair of tweezers trying to catch the aeroplanes flying overhead um, clearly fa failing to understand why that wouldn't work and if a motor car like Toad of Toad Hall came past when she was in the pony and trap the, the old lady had to have a blanket put over her head because the noise and smell and smoke terrified her so my, mo <laughs> my mother grew up in that society, and my dad grew up in, in Sussex in the 1920s and 30s, and as I say, it gave me a sense of, uh, of history that I think you know, goes back a, a, a fair bit further than most. I, I feel more connected to previous generations, I think, um, than some people. Is that why you became a history teacher? No, I was, I was actually an English teacher. Um, the, the history bit was, my, my mother was a history teacher, and so I, I had the stories from her, not all of which were good. She loved Napoleon, for example. There was no, you know, the Irish and Napoleon. She, she, she always had this very romantic view. My father used to take a very dim view of her stories on Napoleon. But she was always telling me about him throwing open his cloak and saying, would you arrest l'empereur? But um, no, it, it, she was the history teacher and she brought me up with a, a sense of stories as the core of history, that history was stories with occasional dates about real people so I think probably that influence came from her but I took up uh, teaching I went for the easy one from my point of view which was English um, and uh, I did uh, seven years teaching um, I, I became head of department at a, a secondary school in in Kenton and had uh, yeah it was, it was a very satisfying job it really was a very enjoyable job but I was writing all the time writing is what I wanted to do from the earlier stage um, God, yeah, I mean, I was sending books off from the age of about 11 to publishers in those days. Why do you stop teaching? Um, the, I mean, the, the simple and truthful answer is that, I mean, you'll know this, but the publishers, there was an auction between five publishers. And the idea was to offer enough money in uh, an advance that would allow me to take a year off teaching and write one book. The first book took two years to write when I was still teaching because I was working full time. So it just took an age. They wanted a book a year. So the idea was to, to provide enough in that advance to take one year off, produce the book and then so on. And that was 20 years ago. Um, I haven't gone back because they, I keep writing the books. I mean, once I got my foot in the door, you know, I, <laughs> I am uh, persistent and I, as I say, I was producing books and writing books from the age of 11, certainly from 13 on. And once they said yes, they said no an awful lot. But once they said yes, then I was never going to allow that door to close again, if I possibly could. You never feel under the cosh. I, do, I mean, I, I'm obsessive about deadlines. I'm obsessive about... Uh, I've never missed a deadline in, in 20 years, and I intend never to miss it. So I push myself, yes, to the level of complete physical exhaustion... Um, I think I probably would 
regardless of what I do. I feel a great desire to to work. I am hopeless when I'm not working. I'm not good at uh, leisure. I feel guilty. This is my mother's Catholicism, of course. I feel <laughs> laziness is a great sin in, in, my, in my family. I, I feel, even if I'm just sitting around watching episodes of Frasier, which I do, I feel horribly guilty all the way through because of the things I could have done. The painting door, the door painted that I didn't do, the work that I should have done, the errands that I should have run. I feel terribly, uh, terribly lazy. But as a result, I don't miss deadlines. I, I work very hard and I do the best I possibly can to uh, get it all in on time. I like to be a professional. I, I know I am a creative artiste, but I never wanted to be a flaky one. I, you know, I always wanted to be able to say, <laughs> you know, give me the task. I'll do it. I won't let you down. And I, I hope people appreciate that about me because it, it works for me. I... Douglas Adams famously said um, he loved deadlines. He enjoyed the whirring sound they made as they went past. And yeah, but he had to be locked in a room, didn't he, in order to finish the? Well, that was I. I told that story about the fact that he had to be locked into a room to Susan Watt um, of HarperCollins at the time, and then she said, "Yes, I had to lock him in his bathroom," and she was the very woman who had locked him in. And then I told it to Louise Moore of, of uh, Penguin, and she said, yes, I was there. I mean, <laughs> that was brilliant. But I couldn't, I couldn't live like that. I can't, uh, I can't live with things hanging over my head. It was the biggest problem I ever had when I was a teacher, actually. I, I have difficulty prioritising. If you give me a task, I will do it. If you give me a less important task, I will put off the first task and do the less important one. It's just about priorities. I have no idea how people manage it. I really haven't. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. What was it you liked about the Greeks? I avoided uh, Greece for a long time, partly because I read a very good treatment of Alexander the Great uh, by David Gemmell, and it was just beautifully done, two books, and I thought that's, it's so well done, I won't look. When, when you're looking for big figures like Julius Caesar, and you're looking for universally known figures, Alexander the Great pops up, 
And I thought, I'm never going to touch Alexander the Great. And therefore, I didn't look at Greece for the longest time. And then my son started doing uh, classics. He did Greek and Latin at A-level. And he introduced me, you know, to a couple of the great stories, like the 10,000 under Xenophon. Um, 10,000 Greek uh, mercenaries who joined the Persian War, lost a crucial battle, and then had to fight their way home. And it's one of the all-time great adventure stories, but it isn't very well known. It used to be well known. It used to be really well known. I, I used to thank history teachers because of their lack of effort. I had a career because partly the fact that they don't tell these stories anymore, it isn't general knowledge anymore, allows me to, uh, to remind people of truly great stories that used to be common knowledge. Do you think we're deprived from not knowing these things or by not yes. knowing Oh, God, no, I, I absolutely do. I mean, going back to what I said about the, the, the Spartan boy or Scott of the Antarctic or any of these, the, the people we hold up as heroes, the stories we tell are fundamental to who we are. Um, that apart from anything else, it's simple values. You say, you're saying, I value courage. I value daring do. I value slight wildness or even slight badness. When my dad used to talk about Captain Morgan, crossing the isthmus of, of, if I can pronounce it correctly, of Panama, and he had double pistols in the front of his belt and double pistols in the back, and Spanish noblemen would rode out and tried to tell him where to get off, and he fired the pistols at them. These are good, these are good stories, but they're just not told. So those, the values, if you like, of, um, oh God, perseverance and courage and, and sheer guts and glory are considered less important. Um, and that does mean that we chuck out a few babies with a few buckets of bathwater. Do you find the modern world disappointing? No, I mean, so I, I keep telling my children that you live in the best century there has ever been, obviously my girls in, in particular, um, that there are extraordinary innovations going on and extraordinary parts of the world that no one could imagine even a generation ago that they will pro tell my children they'll almost certainly they have to plan for a hundred years of good health and almost certainly they will see some way of going to the moon possibly going to mars and that will be absolutely extraordinary and so i love that so i don't find the modern world disappointing in some ways yet i am very aware of the fact that as each generation falls away some part of our knowledge is lost and again I have my father's example. He said when his mother died, she knew a huge amount about the Anglo-Saxon villages of the south coast of England. And she used to know all of the sort of the names of the people involved, all the stories, all the villages' names. And when she died, an awful lot of it was just lost. And I said that to my dad. I said, well, look, there will come a time when you die. And I would very much appreciate it if you would record your histories, your stories, so that I can have them afterwards, which he found a bit morbid, but I finally managed to get him to do it. And he wouldn't tell me, we had to go through this ridiculous farce where he would tell my mother and I was allowed to sit in a corner of the room and write notes. He wouldn't let me record him, but I could, uh, I could write notes of his stories from World War II, the RAF, the, the planes he flew, the people he met, the people who died around him. And I'm very, very thankful for all of that because, you know, without... Without having done that, those stories would be gone. But when it comes to, you know, the, the modern world, I'm aware that each generation we lose something and we gain something new. And we're like, it's as if we drag an anchor through. The anchor's always dragging from the past. We can't be rooted in 100 or 200 or 500 years ago or, or 2,000 years ago. We do drag ourselves forward. But I'm also, in fact, if you, the problem is that 
having looked at a lot of historical cultures, I'm aware that culture is almost completely plastic. I mean, it can be almost anything we make it. Cannibals do not sit around saying, why, oh, why are we cannibals? You know, and it, the Spartans did put children out to die. Uh, so did the Mongolians. Um, if a child was deformed in some way, they put it out into the snow to die. And it, what that means is almost anything is acceptable to human beings if we allow it to be, which means that there's no... I worry sometimes that there isn't a demonstrable good and evil, that we can allow almost anything, and therefore we have a duty to choose the best and lose as little as possible. But there's, I mean, there is nowhere to go in terms of war stories, for example, beyond Thermopylae, is there? Thermopylae, Thermopylae was, it was a, a, great, a great story. I mean, it, it's odd how people tend to know that, the 300, but they don't know Plataea, which was the, the, the big one. Um, I mean, that was the one that actually stopped the Persians. And of course, when it comes to writing about this, I mean, the structure of the generations is what appeals to me and what historians tend to forget. When you take the Battle of Marathon, there was Miltiades and Themistocles and Aristides and, uh, trying to think who else, oh, and Xanthippus. And those four men all stood together on the same day against a massive Persian invasion at a place called the Fennel Field. And 10 years later, they were also still there for when the Persians invaded again. The Xerxes, the son of Darius the first time. So it's the relationship between those men that make it such a great story. And then the fact that Xanthippus had a son who was Pericles. Miltiades had a son who was Cimon, who went on to be the greatest naval leader of Athenian history and stopped the Persians in their third great attempt, which no one has ever heard of, the Battle of Eurymedon River because he stopped it early. He got in there, like um, Drake and Cadiz with the fire ships, he got in there and clobbered them before they had a chance to come back for Act 3. I mean, for my money, part of the joy of historical fiction is, is telling the great sweep so that people understand it. But you can't intervene in historical fiction, can you? I mean, you can't change the outcome. No, God, no. Caesar has to die. Um, you can make it so that they understand a bit better why he has to die... Um, I mean, uh, Suetonius described when Julius Caesar was assassinated and he was being stabbed. And we know that there were 23 wounds on his body. It was one of the world's first autopsies afterwards. They logged each of the, the cuts. And we had described that Caesar took his toga and pulled it over his head and sat there as they continued to stab him until he fell. And no one knows why, because you could hardly ask him, because he died almost immediately. So some people have suggested his nerve went, that he was afraid. But if I did my job well enough telling those stories, I hope I would have made clear that he wasn't the sort of man to lose his nerve. That I hope, my opinion, and it is a conclusion and an opinion, which was that it was contempt, that he wouldn't look upon them. He knew he was dying and he wouldn't even sort of uh, turn his face to them, not after he'd seen Brutus and realised that Brutus, his great friend, was part of them, then that's part of the story that I can fill in, but I hope it works within the consistency of the character, if you see what I mean. Did you watch Game of Thrones? No, I haven't, because I read the books. I read the books first, and I enjoyed them. Um, I've, I've rarely... Uh, I mean, it's one of the strange things about historical fiction that, first of all, everyone is dead. 
So you know that to some extent your job is to make tension, bearing in mind that we all know Julius Caesar died, Genghis died, everyone in the Wars of the Roses dies, and so on. So it's a little bit tricky. The big wonder of the Game of Thrones stories, of course, is that he managed to, to surprise the reader so that people you thought couldn't possibly die because they're the equivalent of James Bond and therefore can't get shot, get killed. And that was the shock. And I had enjoyed that in the books. I was convinced the series uh, wouldn't do a decent job. But I, I, could, I, I could be wrong. I haven't seen it yet. I probably will do. It's pretty good, you know. I mean, I, I sneered at it for ages and ages and ages. But it's quite exciting. It's quite exciting. And it's sort of... It, 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 it uses language, interestingly. Yeah, I, well, I love that. Um, you, you've never seen Deadwood, have you? I have. I really enjoyed it. Oh, I am pleased, because Deadwood was brilliant. I love the way they used language in that with a swear engine. Um, what is it, Ian, Ian McShane? God, that was... Oh, yeah, Lovejoy. Yes, yes, I know. Lovejoy Who would have the... known? Lovejoy had, had a part like that in him. No, I love that. It reminded me because I think it, I heard a kind of rumour that Deadwood was originally written as a Roman uh, thing. And then I think either Gladiator came out or something else came out, some Roman. And they, they switched to the, the West, but kept a slightly florid, um, educated way of speaking that was a joy, a joy to listen to. It was. I, I enjoyed it. It's not as good as that in the terms of the language, but it's great. Deadwood was fantastic. <laughs> if Game of Thrones is in the same league, then I, I would enjoy it. I mean, uh... have you um, tell me how are you coping with th these? Are all like, activities for lockdown? How are you coping with it? I, you know, the the problem of lockdown for me has not been so much the the working on my own in the house thing because that's what I tend to do anyway. I I sit up in an attic at a standing desk and I I work and I read. It's the fact that the house is... I have four children and uh, three dogs, and it's the fact that everyone is here all the time. That is the slightly tricky thing for me, because God knows I do love them, but still, they are very, very noisy, time-consuming. <laughs> I'll stop it. And after a while, everybody gets on your nerves. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. There's no way, no matter how much you love people, <laughs> sooner or later, you'll quite like them to leave. <laughs> Are there any of these worlds that you inhabit in your mind that you'd you'd rather live in? Well, this is this is again. This goes back to me saying to the children that this is the best century they'll ever live in. When my dad was a young man, he described the dentist as somebody who came to their came to their village once a month, and he brought a small cart and some big sets of pliers. And if you had a bad tooth, you waited in pain until the the tooth man arrived. And then he got the pliers and pulled it out. And I, there are some aspects of you know, the ancient world that I would love to see, but I always think they didn't wash as often as they should have done. And their teeth, their teeth were just terrible. I couldn't live in the past with bad dentistry. I, I really couldn't. Um, but this is the anaesthetics and antibiotics argument, isn't it? Well, it, it, uh, I mean, how does that go? In what the end, you... you get out of washing machines. Who cares about bloody washing machines? <laughs> oh, I don't know. I mean, don't forget the average age of death was a fair bit younger as well. Not, not for everyone. But uh, I, there are some parts, of course, I'd love to see it. God, if I had a time machine, the things I would, the things I would do with it, not least to put right some mistakes I've made in my own past, but... <laughs> No, oh, I'd, I'd cause terror. I would not be trusted with the time machine. But, of course, I'd go back and see Julius Caesar in all his pomp and glory. 
and probably not Genghis Khan because I imagine he was dangerous even to approach. But, um, you know, Wars of the Roses. I would love to see Henry VI again. I mean, I'd love to, to see the... I stood in the room where he was killed in the Tower of London and that was... Oh God, it was eerie. I mean, he was a complete innocent. He was very nearly made a saint. Um, I mean, he prayed for eight hours a day and you sleep for eight hours a day. So that's, I mean, that's two thirds of your life gone right there. Um, the poor devil was about as innocent as a human being can be and completely out of, out of his league when it came, to, it came to surviving the British throne, you know. So yes, I'd love to meet some of these people. Yeah. Would you be better off, do you think? No, well, no, I doubt it. I mean, I, one of the things I think that... I think one of the reasons we like Rome is because they did wash. You know, we all know... <laughs> we all know in medieval times, no one washed. But Rome, they had baths. And ancient Greece, they had baths. And, of course, gymnasia. Of course, everyone was, you know, everyone was naked in the gymnasium. I'm not sure I would... Uh, I mean, that's what the word means, gymnos, you know. But I would uh, not be too happy to be wandering around nude, even in the Greek sun, I think. Uh, maybe when I was a younger man, Jeremy, you might... <laughs> <laughs> you might appreciate the sentiment. I, I don't know. I do appreciate the sentiment. I wouldn't like it either. No, <laughs> no it's all very well when you're uh, you know, gorgeous and slim and bronzed and all that. But uh, it's, a, it's a tricky thing. I, I, I would love to see, obviously, some of the past and to know the people. I... I, I do feel sometimes that I uh, carry a legacy from them. This is from my father and so on. Perhaps because I knew people who knew Victorians, I do sometimes think I don't want to shame them. You know, I, I read stories, I read the life of Douglas Bader, for example, and I, I think how that man, and my mother met him, um, how he would have reacted to some of the health and safety uh, <laughs> culture that we have today and I know it would have been with enormous scorn I would be embarrassed to to tell him about it and when I think of his quote that rules are for the guidance of wise men and the obedience of fools I I think about how many of us especially in lockdown just accept the rules as if they are holy writ and that makes me rather sad and again I, I feel an odd responsibility to a man I never met but I don't want to uh, sort of shame his memory by being uh, too obedient if that makes sense. I know what you mean. It's a terrible, terrible place we're in now, isn't it? It is. We're coming out of it. I'm looking out at a beautiful spring day. I had my AstraZeneca um, injection yesterday. I'm expecting that people are slowly going to wake up from this. Again, you know, my, my dad used to remember things like their 1945 government and he would remember the dockers going on strike during World War II and how annoyed he was. You get used to the fact that cultures change. That gave me a perspective that nothing was forever. This too shall pass. And it will. There will come a time where even the people who remembered World War II uh, pass on and uh, it no longer continues to spread ripples. In, I think, two, two or three years, this will just be a peculiar summer and we'll have moved on to completely different royal family problems and all the rest of it. And in fact, come to think of it, there's a, uh, I, I don't even want to mention it, but there's a, there's a dark day coming that we all know is coming, um, that the Queen can't last forever, and, when, and I'm not ready for her to go. She links me to my children, to my father, and uh, when she is finally gone, it will be the end of an era. And the country, it, it will be damaging, I think, for all of us. I'm desperately pleased that she's hung on 
through at an at a good old age through difficult things like Brexit and Covid and because it was necessary to keep her at the helm. Um, you know, I need the stability, I think, of having, uh, as silly as it sounds, maybe, but of having the Queen there. I, I value her. Are you an old Tory con? Uh, in some ways, I, see, I, I don't describe myself as one uh, because I tend to believe in uh, an extremely sort of... Uh, I, my happiest position would be no government at all. That's my extreme position. So in which case, I'm a sort of anarchist, I guess. But I accept. And then I build back. I say, OK, I do need an army because I don't want to get invaded. All right, I've got to have the police. And I understand we need taxes to pay for those. So I build back up. But the place I end back up is is much smaller in terms of big government than we have now. So I do. my extreme position is no government. And I build back up to the very bare minimum. I tend to trust people to, you know, to look out for themselves and their society. I understand that that's a, a compassionate way of looking at uh, life. But it, it, it's, it's how I... I'm, I'm, so I can't call myself a conservative, not in that way. Um, I think you can. You believe in small government and you want people to look after themselves. Well, if that's, if that's the fundamental principle, it doesn't seem to be what this government believes in. I mean, if this is a Conservative government, they oh, tend well, to believe... God telling... knows what this one <laughs> Well, they tend to believe people, uh, you know, should need to be told what to do and that infantilises. And I, I don't like being infantilised by big government. I don't like it for me and I don't like what it does to other people. So, yes, I mean, if that's a Conservative, then... But as I say, I prefer to think of myself as a kind of uh, anarchist. <laughs> Gone. thanks very much for talking to us. Thank you. It's, it's very nice to talk to you, Jeremy. Very nice to see you again. Well, there you are, Con Igledon. Who says history's boring? I don't. Next week, I'm speaking to the man who launched a 100 foul-mouthed tirades on the thick of it, the former spin doctor, prolific diary writer... And Burnley devotee, Alistair Campbell. I don't think he'll be nice to me. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program.